You are listening to an audio sermon from Sovereign Grace Church Toronto. For more information, visit sovgracesto.org. Well, please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Today we're continuing our series in the letter uh, that we know as 1 Timothy um, in what is today, I think, our fifth message in this series. As I was preparing for today's sermon, I was reading uh, one of several of the commentaries that I read to prepare for each of these sermons, and in one of these commentaries, uh, the the, uh, author of that commentary opened with this parable. It's a parable taken from an Anglican priest from uh, 1953. Uh, The Anglican priest's name is Theodore Weddle. Never heard of him before, but I was uh, particularly moved by this parable that he wrote. And I, I believe that this parable does well in setting the stage for our text today. So I'm going to read this parable in its entirety to you uh, for the purposes of our introduction. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life saving station. The building was just a hut. There was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved, and various others in the surrounding area, wanted to become associated with the station, and gave of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought, and new crews trained. The little life-saving station grew." Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it beautifully because they used it as a sort of club. Few members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions. So they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club's initiations were held. About this time, a large ship wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick. The beautiful new club was in chaos, So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split among the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station. So they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. Now, in case you didn't 
realize this or pick this up, this is a parable about the dangers that face the church. It's a parable about the dangers that local churches face in losing their quality as spiritual life-saving stations and becoming exclusive clubs instead. It's a parable about how easy it is for the church to lose its commission to make disciples of all nations because they become too busy with their own social functions and activities. The question that we need to ask ourselves often, including today, is what are we more like? Are we more like a spiritual life-saving station or are we more like an exclusive club? As people around us make a shipwreck of their lives, do we receive them with the love and care that befits the gospel? Or do we see that kind of work as unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of our club? That's the problem that the Apostle Paul faced in the church in Ephesus. In chapter one, Paul was concerned that the church was losing its quality as a herald of the gospel and becoming a theology club instead. There were leaders arising in the church in Ephesus who wanted to talk about all sorts of theological peculiarities, to debate genealogies, to devote themselves to myths and to vain discussions rather than reaching the lost with the gospel. And that's not something that Paul would tolerate, but because for him, the gospel wasn't just an idea. It wasn't just a concept to be dissected. It was intensely personal for him. He said in verse 15 of chapter one, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. For Paul, the gospel was intensely personal and he wanted the church to continue the life-saving work of the gospel that many more sinners would be saved. Now that's Paul's concern as we transition to chapter two. Paul wants to help Timothy lead the church in such a way that it functions as a spiritual life-saving station and not as an exclusive club. And as we'll see, the first thing that he begins with is prayer. He begins with Prayer, and he's not just praying for those who are on the inside. It's prayer that extends outward to those who are not yet part of the church. And as we will see, it is prayer that preserves the life-saving, gospel-proclaiming quality of a church. So let's read our text today. We're gonna be reading 1 Timothy chapter two, verses one to seven. This is the word of the Lord. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. 
a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The title of this sermon is, First of All, Pray. First of all, pray. My aim today is to show you that prayer keeps the church engaged in the mission of saving the lost. Prayer keeps the church engaged in the mission of saving the lost. We're going to break up our text today into three points. First, the priority of prayer. Second, the purpose of prayer. And third, the power of prayer. The priority, the purpose, and the power of prayer. First, the priority of prayer. We begin by remembering why Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. The purpose of this letter is to teach Timothy how to put the local church at Ephesus into good order. It's like an instruction manual on how to build a healthy church. Now, when it comes to some of the books of the Bible, the, the reader of the scripture needs to do a lot of digging and a lot of hard work to discern what the original author's intent was in writing that particular book of the Bible. Not so with 1 Timothy. And that's because Paul himself tells us clearly why this letter was written in chapter 3. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul is concerned about ordering church life so that the way that the believers in the context of a local church interact and what they devote themselves to would honor Christ and fulfill the mission of the gospel. So what does behaving in the household of God look like? Well, Paul says, first of all, it begins with prayer. Verse one, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, I think most of us, when we read that verse, we think about it as a personal exhortation to us to recommit ourselves to our private prayer lives, to be more faithful in praying in our own rooms or in our own homes or before meals or in our families. And, and that is true to some extent. But when we remember that Paul is not talking about the individual Christian life, but the corporate Christian life of a church, we recognize that he's, he's talking not just about prayer, he's talking about corporate prayer. When believers get together to pray together. Now notice how he opens verse one. He says, first of all, first of all, He's saying the first thing you need to know about building a healthy church is that it all starts with prayer. Charles Spurgeon, writing in the mid-19th century, he likened uh, prayer to the engine room of a mill. At that time, there were no cars or vehicles, but there were mills, and the mills depended on engines in an engine room to run. He said, if the engine room is out of action, then the whole mill will grind to a halt. We cannot expect blessing if we do not ask. Prayer is the engine that keeps the church running. Have you ever thought about that? Do you believe that? That prayer is the fuel that keeps the church burning hot with passion for the glory of God. So without prayer, you're going to lose your first love pretty quickly. It doesn't matter how good the teaching is. It doesn't matter how good the discipleship programs is. If we do not pray, our passion for the glory of God will fizzle and decrease. Now, you may be wondering, how is prayer of first importance? I mean, we're in chapter two. Right? He said all these things in chapter one. What he said in chapter one, isn't that of first importance? That's a good question. 
Now, I believe that what Paul was doing in chapter one was he was addressing the unique circumstances of the Ephesian church. He's talking about what's urgent. He says, if I don't address the false teaching that's being spread across the church in Ephesus, there's gonna be no church left to put into good order. He had to start with the doctrine of the gospel because the gospel was being threatened in that church. But now that he has concluded that argument by the end of chapter one, and he transitions into chapter two, he's returning now to his regularly scheduled programming to the basic fundamental building blocks of the church. He's saying, if you have a church that is devoted to the gospel, built on the doctrine of the gospel, that is committed to to, uh, responding to and rebuking to teaching that contradicts and undermines the gospel, then this is where you start. You start with prayer. You start with prayer. A healthy church needs a healthy prayer life, not just separately, but together. We need to pray together. And that's why our church leadership has committed ourselves to creating multiple opportunities throughout the week for corporate prayer. We have our Wednesday night prayer meetings. We have our pre-service prayer meetings. We have our pastoral prayers in the middle of our Sunday services. Praying together matters. Now the question that we need to ask ourselves is, if, if this is true, if praying together is is essential, it's necessary for uh, a church to be healthy and to continue to be healthy, we have to ask, well, how much of the corporate prayer life of the church am I a part of? The question at this point isn't, well, how much do I pray? How much do I pray in private? How much do I pray with my family? It's how much do I pray with the church? If a healthy church needs a healthy prayer life together, am I part of helping the church stay healthy? Now, I know for some of you, the barrier to praying together with other people is that you feel that you are incompetent. You measure yourself against the standards of other people and you feel, I'm, I'm not eloquent enough. I don't have the right language or the right words to pray. My, when I pray with other people, I feel clumsy. I feel juvenile and it's, it's, it's embarrassing. Well, if that's, what, if that's you, I want you to know three things. First, you don't have to speak in order to pray with other people. You don't have to speak in order to pray with other people. When someone leads the church in the pastoral prayer in the middle of the service, we're not just observing. We're not just listening to someone pray. We are praying along with them in our hearts. We're not passive observers. We are active participants as we let that person use their words to give us words to pray to God. We don't need to speak in order to pray with other people. Second, prayer, this is an important one, prayer is like any other skill. It needs to be learned and it needs to be developed. You've probably heard a parent or a Sunday school teacher define prayer to a child as, well, it's just speaking to God. It's just speaking to God. And, and that's, that's marvelously true. Prayer is speaking to God, but that's not all there is to say about prayer. Prayer isn't just about what we want to say to God. It's about what God wants us to say back to him. Now you think about what, how Jesus responds when his disciples ask him in Luke chapter 11, Lord, teach us to pray. No, he doesn't say, well, just speak to God. 
Just relate to him like you would your own father. He gives them the Lord's Prayer. He gives them content. He teaches them how to pray and what to pray. This is also reflected in verse one of our text today where Paul writes, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. Paul doesn't just say, first of all, pray. First of all, talk to God. He, he uses four distinct words here to uh, try to communicate that all of prayer, all the different kinds of prayer we are to marshal together in our corporate prayer life to offer up to God. Now, scholars don't agree on what all these different words mean. We could venture a guess. We could say supplications are bringing requests. Prayers adds kind of like this religious element to it. We're bringing these requests before God. Intercession is praying on behalf of other people. And thanksgiving is thanking God for answering our prayers. You could, you could say something like that, but the, the, there's really no consensus. The point, however, and the point remains that Paul's saying there's all these different kinds of praying, all these different ways to, to practice prayer, and we need to use all of it as we pray together. We need to learn how to pray well. And there really is no better way to learn how to pray well than to pray with people who pray well. You know, I, I asked Mark Picciuto if I could share this uh, earlier. He, he said, sure. You know, I remember when Mark started coming to this church and we'd be praying in our small groups in prayer meeting or in preservers prayer and he would rarely utter a single word. He was embarrassed, shy, timid, whatever. He wasn't confident in his ability to, 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 to pray in a small group setting. And I understood. He got the first lesson. He didn't need to speak in order to pray with other people. But over time, as he has participated faithfully, as he has listened to other more experienced, mature prayer warriors pray, he has become a mighty prayer warrior. I I love praying with my friend Mark. He is exhibit A when it comes to the testimony that prayer can be learned. It is a skill that can be cultivated. The third reason why we pray even uh, together, even when we feel clumsy, is because it makes God happy. It makes God happy. In verse three, Paul says, this, meaning praying together, is good And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Praying together is good, not because of all the fancy words that you bring, not because of all your unique contributions to the prayer meeting. It is is good because it pleases God. This may seem strange to us because we don't often think in these kinds of categories. We don't often think about what can I do to please God? What can I do to make God happy? What can I do to bring a smile to his face? When we're planning out our weeks, we tend to think about what will make us happy, not about what makes God happy. We kind of assume that God is just happy with us, or perhaps we assume that he's not happy, and anything that we do could never change that. But the reality is that if we truly love God, if we truly love him with our hearts, not just with our mouths, we will desire to please him, won't we? Because we desire to please those we love. We know that's true of human relationships. Why isn't true of the divine human relationship? Love aims to please. You know, when I take my days off on Mondays, you know, you'll often see me vacuuming my house or cleaning our toilets. 
That's not because that pleases me. It's because it pleases my wife. And I want to please my wife because I love her. We aim to please those we love. And if we love God, we will desire to please him by our corporate prayer together. It doesn't matter if you go to a prayer meeting and you don't say a word. If you're praying along with others in your heart, you are pleasing your heavenly father. And that is always a good thing. Prayer must take priority in the life of the local church. But what are we to pray for? Now this leads to our second point, the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer. I want to begin with a caveat uh, to point out that this text does not identify everything that we are to pray for. It identifies one thing. Well, several things related to one thing. But if we truly want to learn what we are to pray for, we need to look at the prayer book that God himself has given us in the Psalms. The Psalms teach us how to pray. They give us the language that we need to bring our complaints and our thanksgiving and our intercession and our praise to him. But they also teach us what to pray about. To pray for justice. To pray for the pursuit of righteousness to pray for the lost, to pray for God's people, to pray for the honor of his name. The Psalms are God's uh, divinely given gift to us to teach us how to pray. It is our prayer school. The lesson that we learn from our text today is much narrower, but it's still extremely important. And at first glance, it seems like the lesson about prayer it's teaching us and this is how we often read this text, is it's teaching us to pray for our government. You know, when the election comes up, we're like, oh yeah, First Timothy 2 exists. Let's remember to pray for our government. That's the lesson of this text. And uh, that's, uh, that's true to some extent, but it's not the full picture. You know, what, what we're gonna see is that Paul's ultimate concern here isn't just that Christians pray for their governments. It's that Christians pray for the lost, including the lost in their government, including the government so that uh, the, the mission of the gospel would go forth with greater power and greater prevalence among the lost. That's apparent as we follow the logic of the text. In verse one, Paul says that prayer should be made not just for government, he says made for all people. He wants us to pray for all people. And then verse two, he specifies that prayer should be made for kings and all who are in high positions. So in other words, Paul's not just saying, remember to pray for your government. He's saying, remember to pray for all people, including your government. They're not excluded from God's jurisdiction just because they occupy a high position in the worldly hierarchy. Then in verse three, he says that praying for all people is good and pleasing. But then notice what he says. He doesn't just say it's good and pleasing in the sight of God. He says it's good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. God, our Savior. You know, God is many things. He is just, he is wise, he is righteous, he is merciful, he is loving. But here, Paul chooses to pause, to meditate on God's quality as Savior. God is our Savior. Saving is what he does. Saving is what he desires. God wants people to be saved because he is our savior. 
And that is gloriously true, not just for us, but for all. Not just for a particular ethnic group, but for people from every tribe and nation. Not just for people who are of a particular social class, but for those who are low and those who are high. And that is why verse four says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God delights in salvation because he is a savior. Now we need to pause here for a little bit of a theological discussion so that we understand exactly what it means for God to desire all people to be saved. Now some people take this as a knock on the doctrine of election, the biblical teaching that God sovereignly ordains who he will save and he calls those people to himself with irresistible grace. He starts our salvation and he completes our salvation. But the people who say, well, I don't know if that's true because here it says God desires all people to be saved. That must mean that God is not sovereign over salvation. They, they, they don't picture God as going after lost sinners who are running in the opposite direction. Instead, they see God waiting, waiting and seeing who would make their own way to him. Now, in response, we could say a couple things. The first is we could say that there's a difference between God's desire and God's will. God doesn't always do what he wants. At Mount Sinai, God wanted to destroy Israel after they committed themselves to the worship of the golden calf. But he didn't do that. He willed something that he did not desire. But I think a better response is pointed out by Philip Ryken in his commentary, where he notes that the word all, so God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He says the word all isn't always given a literal meaning. He takes, for example, Luke chapter 21. Jesus is teaching in Jerusalem, and it says, early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now, what does that mean? You know, if it meant literally all people, it meant every single person without exception in the city of Jerusalem crowded into the temple to hear Jesus uh, say what he wanted to say that day. Well, that's not, of course, that's not what it meant. Luke's using of the word all is just used to generally describe a large group of people. That seems to be the way Paul uses the word all in our text. In verse one, when he says that prayer should be made for all people, he's not saying literally, okay, you need to pray for every single person in the world by name. That's what a literal rendering of the word all would require. Pray for all people. Pray for all people You know, get some phone books from around the world and go through the phone books and pray for every single person by name. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that Christians should pray for all kinds of people and not neglect to pray for certain people just because they occupy a particular social position. Same is true in verse two, when he says prayer should be made for kings and all who are in high positions. Again, literally, If we take that literally, it would require us to research all of the governments across the world, all the government officials who occupy high positions and pray for them by name. That's not what it means. Paul is simply saying Christians shouldn't forget to pray for the officials who serve under the emperor. 
Lastly, verse six says that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. To ransom someone is to pay a price to free them from their captivity. We're aware of that in the news where someone gets kidnapped and their kidnappers demand a ransom. You pay the ransom, you set them free. Was that what Jesus did when he died on the cross? Did he ransom all, literally? Well, no, he did not. Because there are people all around us who are still slaves to their sin. Jesus died to ransom not all literally, but all peoples from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. He, he died to ransom people who belong to him regardless of race and social class and etc. As he said in Mark chapter 10, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for who? For all? No, a ransom for many. So when we see in verse four that God desires all people to be saved, we're not to read it as saying that God wants every single person to be saved but is powerless to bring that about. We're to read it as saying that God wants all kinds of people to be saved, whether Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, male or female, young or old. God wants people from every nation, every tribe, every language, every class to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. Now you might be wondering, well, how do I know if God wants me to be saved? Maybe God doesn't want me to be saved. Maybe I'm not part of the ones that God has chosen. That's not how we are meant to hear a text like this. We are meant to always hear God's gracious invitation to sinners, to come to him, to receive forgiveness through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Now all this discussion helps us understand verse two. Uh, I think a, a verse that is often misinterpreted and misapplied. When Paul urges that prayers be made for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, I think we often assume that Paul is advocating for some kind of middle class, white picket fence life for Christians. You know, pray for the government so that they would leave us alone and just let us do our own thing. You know, we just want to be peaceful and quiet. We don't want to bother anyone and we don't want anyone to bother us. But given the context of this burden for the lost, it's clear that what Paul is really praying for He's saying, pray that the government would give us peace so that the witness of our lives would be undistracted, be uncompromised. Pray that that society would be so characterized by peace, by the wise governance of the authorities, so that the way that we live our lives in godliness and dignity would draw many people to Christ. You know, I used to, you know, in my foolish, youthful naivete, I used to hope for persecution for the church in the West. I believe that that would shake the church in the West out of complacency and finally turn us more into a church that is fully committed to Christ. And I remembered how the early church father Tertullian said, 
The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You know, Christians die, and that leads to more people being born again. But I wonder, you know, do you know what the church looks like now in the land that Tertullian once lived in? Tertullian was a Christian leader and author in modern-day Tunisia, African country formerly, um, uh, I think it was Cappadocia, um, Tunisia. But you look at the religious statistics of the nation of Tunisia, it's 98% Muslim. It's 2% other, including Christians and Jews and everything else that, that is an exception to the Islamic monopoly in that country. War and persecution have bloodied the church so badly in certain parts of the world that the gospel has largely gone into retreat. And that is why, my friends, we must pray for peace. We must pray for peace. We are to pray that the kings and the presidents and the prime ministers of the world would govern in such a way that Christians would be free to worship and to witness. It makes a difference. It really does. Paul ends his reflection on prayer with a glorious statement about the gospel, and that leads to our third point, the power of prayer. In verse five, Paul reveals why it pleases God when we pray for the salvation of the lost. It pleases God because God has already done all that is required to save them. He says, for there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, let's not miss how Paul begins verse five. He says, there is one God. There's one God. One God who is over all and through all and in all across the world. Not a pantheon of gods, not a plurality of gods, not a little demigod for every little village and tribe across the world. There is one God Christian doctrine doesn't get more basic than that. We are monotheists, mono being one, theist meaning God, one God worshipers, believers in one God. And yet, it is so easy to live not as monotheists, but as polytheists, at least in practice. We can be functional polytheists, even as we are theoretical monotheists, You know, it's so much easier to say to our Muslim, Buddhist, or Hindu friends, well, we'll we'll worship our God and you worship your God and we'll all get along and be a happy family. That's so much easier than to say, there is one God, my friend. One God, the triune God of scripture. And if you're not worshiping him through Christ, you're not worshiping God at all. You might be worshiping a demon, or a figment of your imagination, or a man who lived and died under the eternal wrath of God, but you are not worshiping the one God unless you worship him in Christ under the authority of his word. Now this may sound exclusive, and in one sense it is. We can't ignore that fact, that it is an exclusive faith that we are a part of if you are a Christian. But in another sense, this truth is wonderfully inclusive, Because this one God who is above all and through all and in all has provided one mediator for all. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. This is the testimony given at the proper time. 
testimony that God, our Savior, has ransomed us through the mediating work of his Son. Our Savior, Christ Jesus, came into the world to ransom us, not just as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man. Everything that he did for our salvation, he did as one of us, as our representative, because no non-human could represent humanity. Only a man could represent mankind. Only a man could be the substitute sacrifice for sinful men and women. Jesus Christ, son of God, son of man, fully God, fully man, gave himself to pay our ransom. But the question is, who did he ransom us from? Who was holding us captive? You know, I love C.S. Lewis, but he got this wrong in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. His theory of God's ransom for us is that we were being held by the white witch, by Satan. And Satan is the one who demanded a ransom from God for our freedom. That's not what the Bible teaches. Verse five says that Christ was the mediator, not between the devil and men, but between God and men. My friends, our primary point of conflict isn't between us and the devil. Our primary point of conflict is between us and God. It was God's justice that held us captive. It was God's justice that required a ransom. And Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom, not to meet Satan's demands, but to satisfy God's wrath. And he did that by giving us Himself, His life was given for ours. His death paid for our ransom so that we could be set free from God's justice. Now Paul says in verse seven that this is the testimony that he gave his life to. This is the testimony he was appointed by Christ to be an apostle and a preacher to bring to the Gentiles. And this is the testimony we are meant to pray for. That the testimony of the gospel would go forth across the nations so that all people might be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. This is the true power of prayer. Prayer is the engine room of the church. But what fuels the engine is nothing less than the gospel. The gospel is what guarantees prayer's fruit. The gospel is what gives us confidence that God will answer our prayers. We can Pray for all because Christ Jesus has given himself as a ransom for all. Whether in low places or high positions. Whether in our neighborhoods or across the world. We must pray if people are to be saved. But the only way we can pray is if we're confident that God saves sinners. Prayer for gospel fruit comes from confidence in gospel power. Prayer for gospel fruit comes from confidence in gospel power. Prayer and evangelism, they go together. Evangelism is is going to be fruitless without prayer. But prayer will be heartless without evangelism. As Philip Ryken writes, the great commission goes hand in hand with the great intercession. We need both. We need both. So how do we as a church stay engaged in the mission of saving the lost? 
How do we, a chosen life-saving station commissioned by Christ to call lost sinners to himself, keep ourselves from becoming a theology club? Well, we must reach out in evangelism and we must reach up in prayer. We reach out and we reach up. Reaching out begins by reaching up. Up is the only way out. Because like everything else in the local church, evangelism begins with prayer. The great commission goes hand in hand with the great intercession. That begins with how our leadership team, our elders, our board leads this church. We need to figure out how to bring the needs of the, of the world before our church. That begins with how I plan our orders of service. What kinds of things I assign to people to pray about. And so starting next Sunday, we're going to start praying for a different nation every Sunday during our pastoral prayers. This is something that I encountered at a pastoral fellowship earlier this month where our friends at Grace Fellowship Church in Rexdale, they were praying for Russia. Not because they sent anyone there, not because they know people who are there, but simply because it was the next nation in Operation World, which they use as a prayer resource to pray for all the nations uh, that God would save the lost. We're going to pray for a different nation. One of the wonderful benefits of our partnership in Sovereign Grace is that our family of churches is involved in so many different countries, in in so many different places of the world. We, We will not lack places and specific people to pray for as we commit ourselves to uh, uh, expanding the scope of our burden to the nations. We're also going to start praying regularly for our nation. We need to start, we need to keep praying, especially as we, as we think about how religious freedoms are going to be curbed in the near future, how churches may be losing their charitable tax status in the near future. Those are debates that are happening in the U.S. in the presidential elections. It's only a matter of time before those debates land within our borders. We need to pray. We need to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Second, I urge all of us to consider how we can be more involved in the corporate prayer life of our church. This is the first thing. First of all, pray. Before anything else, first of all, we need to pray together. If you don't currently go to one of our Wednesday prayer meetings, I encourage you to start by going to just one a month. And if Wednesdays don't work for you, I encourage you to just come join us in our pre-service prayer meetings. You know, I've said this multiple times. The pre-service prayer meeting is one of my favorite church meetings of the week. Often I come to church, I'm tired, perhaps even discouraged. I feel no spiritual fire in my soul as I prepare to preach. But as the people in that room pray with me and for me, God gives me faith. He gives everyone in that room faith. And so I encourage you to consider participating in that meeting. Lastly, I want us as a church to prayerfully consider how we can support missions and church planting all around the world. You know, we, earlier this year, we sent Rachel Parento to Scotland to serve with 20 schemes. That's a great start. 
A lot of us have committed to supporting her financially, but I wonder how many of us have been faithfully praying for her. I know I have not been praying for her as I should. And this wonderfully gospel-centered, Christ-saturated text reminds me to pray for her because evangelism will be fruitless without prayer. We did that last Sunday when we invited Paul McDonald from Grace Fellowship Church, Don Mills, to present on the opportunity he has to go and to provide pastoral care and training to a theological school in Serbia. What a wonderful opportunity to partner with him and his family and to pray for them. And who knows what other opportunities God will open up to us in the coming years. You know, the challenge for us isn't just to give our money. It's simple enough to fill out a form and uh, indicate a one-time donation or a monthly donation and then ease our consciences that we've taken care of the nations the way that God wants us to. The harder call for us, my friends, is to pray, to be faithful in praying for those whom we have sent or who we have seen sent and want to bless their work. Providing money may get people to the unreached places of the world. But without prayer, those places will remain unreached. The unreached will stay that way. But if we pray, we can have confidence that the Lord will move with power because praying for the lost is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all to be saved. To quote Philip Ryken once more, And these are powerful words. God's plan is to build his church by the prayers of his people. Missionaries all over the world stand and wait for the Holy Spirit to bless their labor in the gospel. The Spirit waits only for the church to pray. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help in committing ourselves to pray not only for ourselves, not only for those who are among us, but for those who are not yet part of us. We want to pray for the lost. We want to pray for the nations. We want to pray for those who have been sent out to bring this testimony of the gospel to the lost. Help us, Father, to have a firm conviction of the importance of prayer and in your desire, your pleasure in saving many. May prayer be one of the hallmarks of our church, not only in our past, but in our future, that we would commit ourselves to pray first of all. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.